Hello, I'm Shane Hartsfield, pastor of Beaver Baptist Church. Thank you for listening to our weekly podcast. If you have any questions about what it means to follow Christ or questions about our church, direct you to our website, beaverbaptist.com, for our contact information. Weekly, we study exegetically through books of the Bible. And now, join us as we dive into today's passage. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We are in the Sermon on the Mount. We see... We see in the Sermon on the Mount the, the high standard God has for His children. We see the attitudes that ought to be in the first part of chapter 5, the Beatitudes. We see that we kingdom citizens are to be the salt and light of the world. We're to influence those in our community. We see that Jesus is the law keeper, the law fulfiller. He doesn't come to do away with the law but to fulfill it. He wants us to understand the law, to understand its intent and submit ourselves to it. And we see also a contrast between the religious leaders and their understanding of the law and Jesus' teaching. The law is not rungs on a ladder to be climbed to attain our own righteousness. The law's intent was to show us our hearts, to show us we are not like Christ, motivating us to yield to Him in submission, wanting to obey Him. We see in chapter 6 that the attitudes that ought not to be as the religious leaders would take the, the act of, of worship as opportunities to make themselves the center of attention, and Jesus calls them hypocrites. They give to the needy and they pray and they fast for their own glory. These are giving and praying and fasting are all spiritual activities, but these must be done with the right motive. Now, we don't don't watch a lot of TV at our house, uh, but we we do have some favorite movies. One of our family's favorite movies is The Man from Snowy River. If you haven't seen it, you should. It's a, it's a good one. But it stars Kirk Douglas, and he's in a dual role. They're twin brothers. One is named Harrison. He's the land baron. And the other is Spur, who's a, a miner. And when they were young, they were both in love with the same woman. And you kind of know where this is going, don't you? Well, Harrison blew the leg off a of spur when he was younger and, and they've been separated for some time. It's a, it's a great story, great movie, but that one actor 
plays two roles in the movie. And when you have one actor playing two roles, that's what it means to be a hypocrite. And that's what Jesus is telling the religious leaders, you're hypocrites. And Morgan taught last week as they were giving, he says, you don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the Pharisees. And when you fast, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be like the hypocrites. The Pharisees looked the part. They dotted the I's and crossed the T's of their own oral tradition, but their hearts were far from the Lord. They looked the part on the outside, but really they're, they're playing two different roles. They're hypocrites. So today we're looking at verse 5 through 15. Two, two points, I guess. Um, and the first one is the purpose of prayer. What's the purpose of prayer? Last week we looked at giving and, and fasting, and we're coming back to this today. What's the purpose of prayer? Well, in verses 5 and 6, we see the purpose of prayer is not to make ourselves look good. Jesus says in the text here, don't pray like the hypocrites who do, to gain applause, to gain the praise of men. The religious leaders were seeking attention and praise from others instead of giving attention and praising God. And I mentioned this passage several times, Luke chapter 18. It's the, the story Jesus told of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, and they go to the temple. And the Pharisee says ostentatiously to God, I'm glad, well, he says to God, but he's really saying it to, to other people, for other people to, to hear, I'm glad I'm not like all these others, especially the tax collector. What does the tax collector do? The scripture says that he stands off at a distance, not even looking up towards heaven, but beating his breast, saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He wasn't trying to draw attention to himself, unlike the Pharisee. And the scripture teaches us today that the, the Pharisees had his reward, right? The accolades from people, the looks of admiration from the crowds, that was, that was his reward. So a question for us is, is the only praying we do public prayer? It's the only time you talk to the Lord is it when the family gets together and you have this really long, elaborate prayer of, of thanks for the food. If that's the case, you're probably not doing so to please God, but you're trying to please man. So what is the purpose of prayer? It's not to gain the applause of others. Also in verse 7 through 8, the purpose of prayer is not to manipulate God. He says that when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, as the pagans do, as the non-believers do. For they think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, Jesus says. If you say just the right thing or, or you recant something just the right number of times, you, maybe you can manipulate your God. That's what the Gentiles would do. We see that in 1 Kings chapter 18, the prophets of Baal. There was a contest, Elijah told the prophets of Baal, we're going to see who the real, true, living God is. We're going to have a contest, and, and what you're going to do is you're going to build this altar, and you're going to cry out to your so-called gods and see if they answer you. And, and when they don't, what's going to happen is I'm going to 
call out to my God, the living God, and see if he'll answer me. And, of course, we know what happened. God showed up. God rained down fire upon the altar and consumed it. But the Baal, the false god, of course, did nothing. And we see the text here, and they cried out. These are prophets of Baal, cried out aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on. They cried out until the time of the offering of the, of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Whether it's mantras, prayer wheels, praying the rosary, folks think that they're, if they just say the right thing, it's going to prompt the, their God to move on their behalf. But God, uh, the living God whom we worship, is not like a reluctant father who has to be begged to get off the couch to play with his kids. Jesus here is telling us not to pray in public to receive accolades. Now, he's not saying not to pray publicly. That's not what he's saying. And as we said last week, he's not saying that we shouldn't give publicly. We shouldn't pray publicly. We shouldn't fast. And, and no one should at all should ever know. That's not what his point is. But his, his point is that these, these are all spiritual disciplines. They should be done. But check your motives at the door. Why are you doing it? What's your purpose? What are you hoping to see happen? See, prayer is not a means by which we gain the applause of men. It's not a means by which we can twist God's arm to get him to do something on our behalf. We see in, 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 in what Jesus is going to do here is going to give us this, this um, a model, a pattern. And what's interesting, we kind of see him following the order of the Ten Commandments. You remember the Ten Commandments, the first several commandments, they're focused on our relationship with God. You remember the Ten Commandments? Worship only one God. Don't carve idols, right? Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember those? And, and then he goes into... It moves from the vertical relationship to the horizontal, how we should treat others. And we see kind of something similar here. In the first few verses, the, the attention is on God, on giving him praise. We see God's name, his reign, his will being the focus in the first couple verses. And then in verse 11 through 13, the focus is on our needs, on our need for bread, our need for Forgiveness, our need for protection. But first we see that the cause, the first is the cause of God, the, the will of God, the plan of God, the, the reign of God. That is our, our concern. This ordering teaches us that God and his kingdom must always take priority in our life, even as we pray. And, as we pray. and, and prayer done rightly is a spiritual discipline by which we revere God. We honor Him by how we approach Him. And then we display a dependence on Him by acknowledging our need. That's the purpose of prayer. 
The Bible says we're to do all things for his glory. Well, that must include our prayer life. We should pray for his glory. Does our prayer life give him glory? Are we approaching God in a way that honors him, that shows reverence for him? Is his name hallowed when we approach him? So the purpose of prayer is not, not to make ourselves look good. It's not to manipulate God to do what we want him to do, like a, a souped-up Santa Claus. The purpose of prayer is for us to give him glory, and, and, and we give him glory by how we approach him, with reverence and with fear, with humility. Even as we ask him about our needs and ask him for what we need, and we petition him on, on one another's behalf, what are we doing? As we do that with the right attitude, what happens? God gets glory because as God meets our needs, what happens? He looks good. He looks like a benevolent father. So the purpose of prayer is, is for his glory alone. And, and in verses 9 through 15, we see this pattern of, of prayer. And Tom Nelson, he's one of my uh, favorite pastors. He, he calls this the 23rd Psalm of the New Testament because it's so beautifully written and it's so well known. And many of you, if you, I, I, I do funerals a lot and, and a lot of times I'll teach through Psalm 23, but most of the people there, even if they're not church folks, if they're not Christians, they're not God-fearing people, a lot of them, they'll, they'll be able to quote a lot of Psalm 23. It's very familiar to them. Well, this prayer is really familiar to us. And some of you, maybe you, uh, even growing up, you weren't in church or not, but if you played ball, if you played a sport, a lot of times you would, you would say this prayer. As the football team goes out on the football field, the whole team comes together, and the coach, he's been uh, uh, using God's name in vain and, and, and cursing and, and all kind of terrible language, but he'll get in there and take his hat off and lead in that Lord's Prayer before we go out and, and play football. Jesus says, don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't pray like the Gentiles. But now he tells us how, how to how to pray and don't do it hypocritically or like the pagan but here he gives us a, a pattern and, and this is kind of a flyby today we um, Morgan and I was talking this week later on I, I plan when we finish the Sermon on the Mount we're gonna we're gonna teach through the book of Philippians we're gonna be in, a, in an epistle for a bit we're gonna teach through the, the book of Philippians and and I Lord willing we're to come back to this prayer and be able to teach through this verse by verse precept by precept and and spend a little more time in it. But today's going to be kind of a, a flyby. And this prayer isn't necessarily meant to be memorized and mechanically regurgitated like I did so oftentimes as a child. And it's not wrong to, to, um, to repeat this prayer, but just to do so and not even thinking about the words, that's not really the, the point Jesus is making. He's given us a pattern here of how we should pray. It's not, it's, this is what you should pray, but it's, it's how you should pray, maybe is a better way of putting it. It's a, a pattern for us. And there's three petitions here in the first couple of verses, exalting God, right? We should exalt God. And we see his, his name, his kingdom, his will. They, they, those should be our, our preoccupation whenever we come to the Lord. Look at verse nine. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven. Romans chapter 8, Paul, he 
says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And we see this something similar in Galatians chapter four, verse six. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. Now in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, the Israelites didn't typically they weren't in a habit of, of calling God their father unless they're referring to God the father of the nation as a whole. But individually, they wouldn't come to God and they wouldn't call him father. That's just not something they did. But Jesus, it's interesting, in the new covenant, Jesus ushered in a new covenant when he was on earth, when he prayed, almost always that's how he referred to the first person of the Trinity as, as father. J.I. Packard in Knowing God, he, he talks about our understanding of, of God's fatherhood. And he says this, let me read this quote. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Let's think about who we are. We're sinners. We've been in rebellion against the Lord. But because of Christ's work on the cross, we can call God, and this isn't just any old God. This is the creator God. This is the judge. This is the one who's going to judge all people. This is the one who's going to make everything right. This God we can call, because of Christ's work on the cross, we can call him father. We can call him daddy. We can have that father-son, father-daughter intimacy. And we're, we're Protestants. We believe in, in the 66 books of the Bible. Those books are the inspired word of God. We believe that because of Christ, we can go directly to the Father. We don't go through a priest. We don't go through somebody else. We go directly to him because he's our father and we are his adopted child. He's not begrudgingly listening. He's not a reluctant uh, giver. He's a benevolent father who loves his children and wants to bless them. And so we say, Father, our Father in heaven. We can also say our Father in charge in heaven. What's it mean to be in heaven, our Father in heaven? Now, it's, we, we have earthly fathers, but this is our heavenly Father. What does it mean, to our Father in heaven? It means that he's transcendent. It means he's the creator, we're the created. He's infinite, we're finite. Our Father in heaven. He is our Father, but He is otherworldly. So we draw near to Him with boldness because He's our benevolent Father and He loves us. Because of what Christ done, He showed that He loves us. And we approach Him boldly, but we approach Him reverently. He's otherworldly. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your Name. This is the third commandment in inverted. What's the third commandment? 
All right, Wednesday night. Listen, Wednesday night, if you don't have anything to do, come Wednesday nights. I know some of you work late and it's hard to get here. Come Wednesday nights. We're going through, uh, in, the, in the, the adults, we're going through uh, the overview of the Bible, the, the overall, the, this is the story of the Bible. Chronology of the Old Testament. And we're, we're talking about the, the commandments, the Ten Commandments, and we're learning those in order. But what's the third one? Do you remember? We have these little signs that we do. Yeah, it's don't take the Lord's name in vain. Well, this... Hallowed be your name. It's kind of that commandment inverted. We're not to take the Lord's name in vain, but no, we're to revere his name. Here, the, the, seeing the, the, the kingdom citizen, those who follow the Lord, who love the Lord, are taught to revere God and treat him as holy. He's the uncreated one. We are the created. He has always been, and we're created. We approach him boldly, but we don't disrespect him. We address him as Mr. And we watch our tone. When we were overseas, we had teammates, and, and they were all Yankees. And we love them, and they're some of the, the, the sweetest. They're best friends in life, and we thank the Lord for them every day. But we had children, and um, these families did. We had children first, and so our, our children, we teach our children because we're in the South, it's part of our culture. Yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Uh, that's just what we do. We don't call an, an adult by their name. We call them Mr. or Mrs. And, and so our teammates, when they had children, they're just kind of, they're in a conundrum because they're like, what do we do with our kids? Do we teach them to say Mr. or Mrs.? And I said, well, it's up to you, but our kids are going to say it. If they don't say it, they're going to get a tune-up. Because in our culture, when, you know, if you're speaking to an adult and you don't say Mr. and Mrs. and you call them by their first name, that's really disrespectful. Now, I'm not saying anything bad about these families. They love the Lord. They're some of the godliest people I know. But in their culture, that just wasn't what they did. And their kids would call me shame. And I just couldn't stand it. It just makes me, I just, I just wouldn't, I would ignore them. And so we kind of came up with this thing where we started doing aunt and uncle. So Uncle Shane, yeah, that's better. But just calling me, you know, a, a six-year-old calling me Shane. I don't know. Just being brought up the way I was brought up, it's, it just seems disrespectful. And like I said, there's nothing wrong with that if that's the culture you grew up in. But for, for us, I just, it just unnerved me a little bit. I just didn't feel like it was re respectful. So we came up with this other plan. And they are. They're, you know, they, we were family, and we are family still, but... I was at a, an appointment getting some medical care done and this, this lady that was taking care of me for a time, I asked her about her relationship with the Lord. And she, she responded um, that she was a believer. I, I believe, and since then, we've had other conversations. I believe she is. But she said, oh, yeah, the first time I asked her about the Lord. She said, oh, yeah, Jesus. Man, he's my buddy. He's my buddy. I was like, wait I mean, the Bible talks about him being our friend, but I, for me, it was just a little too casual. Can you say he's your buddy and, and, and revere him at the same time? I'm not real sure. It just kind of didn't set well with me. But, but I believe, like I said, since now, I, I know she loves the Lord, um, but could you say that you are hallowing his name by calling him buddy? First Peter 1 Peter 1.17 and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself how? With fear, right? With reverence throughout the time of your exile. There is a, a reverence we should have for the Lord. 
our approach to God shouldn't just be that we want to revere him, but we want all people to revere him, right? And honor him and respect him. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done. We should revere him, but we should also be submissive to his will. Your kingdom come. God's kingdom here is referring to his, his sovereign rule, his sovereign reign. And we see the kingdom of God, we see the kingdom of heaven. Those are used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. Matthew uses kingdom of heaven. He uses it actually over 30 times. It's real important. It's a really important theme in the Bible. John the Baptist, he preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's interesting, the phrase kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God is not seen in the Old Testament, but the idea is there. And God has been working out his plan since creation. But it has past, present, and future implications. I mean, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He's the king of his kingdom. I mean, think about what the Lord has been doing as we're walking through on Wednesday nights, walking through this chronological story of the Bible. We see God moving through redemptive history, revealing himself to the world. Think about Abrahamic covenant. He told Abraham, he promised Abraham that he's going to be the father of a great nation. Through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And it's just the story of the Jews, the Israelites, and how God reveals himself through the Israelites to the nations. Through you, all the nations, all the nations, that means all the nations, that means the Gentiles will be blessed. Then we get to Paul, and Paul's the apostle to the who? The Gentiles. That's what Paul does. He takes the, the gospel to Gentile peoples in his missionary journeys. Then I look around. How many Jews we got here? I mean, we got a bunch of folks here, and we're here because you either you love the Lord or your spouse loves the Lord or your parents love the Lord, right? A lot of people here love the Lord, and we're all Gentiles. Wow, what do we see? We see... God moving through history, past, present. But you know what? There's going to be a, a future to this thing as well. Jesus coming back. He's going to establish his kingdom. Jesus, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, there they were celebrating the Passover. It's the Last Supper in Mark 14, 25. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. What's he talking about? Is the kingdom of God just future? No, it's past. It's been the kingdom of God, right? We see it in Abraham and moving up to the New Testament. Jesus is saying there's going to be a future fulfillment here, right? Where the kingdom is going to be fully realized. And we see it in the book of Revelation, Revelation 11, 15. Speaking of thinking about the future, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Jesus is coming back. Gather his church to himself. New heavens and new earth. In the future, this kingdom is going to be fully realized. So it has past, present, and future implications. His kingdom comes as his will is accomplished and as he does his sanctifying works in and through believers. The new covenant is God is 
rules and reigns, but there's still a future aspect. Your will be done. Your will be done. Kingdom citizens, those who follow the Lord, should be desiring to obey and wanting to obey the Lord. Jesus did so. Jesus in John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he's arrested, Jesus is praying, not my will, but your will be done. What does the will of God mean here exactly? Well, there's a different parts of God's will. There's the discretive will. We call it the sovereign, efficacious will of God. Like when, when God says, let there be light, what happened? God's will was done because there was light. We, talked about the, we talk about the perceptive will of God. When God says, do not steal, that's the perceptive will of God. Don't steal. Now, that doesn't mean that when God says don't steal, that everybody's not going to steal, does it? Sometimes that doesn't occur. And to muddy the waters even more, you have the permissive will of God. Now, what's great, we have small groups. And if you're not involved in a small group, that's something we're going to be encouraging you to do, be involved in a small group. Rodney has a small group. Blake has a small group. They have small groups on Sunday night. They'll meet tonight and they'll study, go over what we've studied the week prior and they'll have fellowship meal together and spend time together praying for one another. Soon, as soon as we get our, our, our children's church started back, we're going uh, to be working on uh, small groups for children and, and Chris McWilliams, he's going to be starting his small group back on Sunday morning. We look forward to that. But what I'm telling you is, is next week, Blake and Rodney, they're going to explain exactly what this is talking about. And they'll answer every question you have about this will of God because it can get really convoluted. But I'm going to put that on them. Give them something to, to study and prepare for. But if you have a question about the will of God, they'll be able to answer that to you. What is the will of God? It's, it can be somewhat complicated. It's something we need to think through. We want all that God desires to happen, to happen. We want all that God wants to happen to come to fruition. Your will be done. And it, it, it's going to happen, right? We sing this ancient of days. You know, one day, Jesus is going to return. It's all going to be made right. Those of us who know the Lord, we're going to see him face to face. We're, we're going to be made right. Not only in our position, but we're going to be like Christ in our attitude, in our emotion, in our conduct. God's will will be done. He says, on earth as it is in heaven, our one desire should be to do God's will and see others obey the Lord also. Think about in heaven right now. We have some folks who've gone before us that we love dearly, that we we saw them walk with the Lord and we feel confidently that they are with the Lord. In heaven, there are no hesitant obeyers. There are no reluctant worshipers. Do you know that? In heaven, the worship that's going on is joyful and it is passionate and it is willful, done willingly. 
on earth as it is in heaven. May we all obey you on earth, Lord, as those in heaven right now are obeying you, willingly and joyfully and passionately. There should be a desire on our part to honor the Lord, to submit to him and to do his will. These three petitions, exalting God, first his name, then his kingdom, then his will. That should be the, our preoccupation when we come before the Lord. Now in verse 11, there's a shift made to, to our own needs. But it's still all about God's glory, as I mentioned before. We Think about how often we neglect the praising, the yielding to his rule, the putting ourselves in a posture to obey, and we go directly to, help me, help me, help me. And that's okay. The Lord wants us to come to, come to him with our, with our cares and our, and our concerns and our needs. God responds to the needs of his people. And, and by responding to the needs of his people, by providing for our needs, by forgiveness of our sin, by helping us when tempted, he is hallowed, he is glorified. So even as we come to this next section here where, where there's a shift and we're, we're this pattern that we take our needs to the Lord, even in providing for our needs, what happens? God is glorified because prayers, the purpose of prayer is to glorify the Lord, to give him glory. And so we, kind of a, a shift takes place here in verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Now we, we see God coming to the needs of, of his people all throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, we see in, in Exodus, you remember when the Israelites are in Egypt. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. The, the Pharaoh that knew Joseph died and the new Pharaohs that came along generations after, they, they enslaved the Israelites. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And what did, what did God do? God delivered them. And we see it again in Judges chapter 10, verse 10, the same thing. As they disobeyed the Lord, they didn't drive out completely those who were in the promised land. What did God do? God judged them by allowing those those. Canaanites and the Hittites to oppress them. And they were so miserable. And finally, they, they repented and they cried out to the Lord. And what did God do? God gave them a judge, a military leader to, to lead them out of that bondage. We see that time and time again. Give us this day our daily bread. We, we think about needs and our needs, especially being here in the land of heat and air, the land of America. Not many of us have to go to God for our daily portion of food. And in the New Testament, when, when you would work, you would be paid that day and you would be paid for that day's wage and it was enough for you to buy enough food for that day. For us, we should continually remember that he's the one who meets our needs. As we go to Walmart, how, we, how can we do this practically? You go to Walmart, we should be thankful. As you walk down the aisle, there's 1,300 kinds of cereal. When you look and say, wow, the abundance of food. And not only do, is there 1,300 types of cereal on the shelf, but I actually have money in my pocket or in my bank account where I can actually buy several kinds of cereal to take home to eat. We shouldn't forget our needs are met by the Lord. We are so wealthy. If you're like, well, I'm, you, only, you don't know anything about my financial situation. I know a lot about a lot of folks' financial situa situation in the world, and we're all wealthy. <laughs> we're, 
we're wealthy folks. I used to, as a youth pastor, I always want to take take students on a to a third world country. And the students on the way back on the airplane from that third world country, they would just every time it was so awesome because they would just weep and cry because they realized how blessed they were to live in America and have so much stuff and to be blessed and not have to worry about food. Not have to worry about provision. But sometimes as we we're blessed so much, we can forget where all that comes from. And I know you work hard. I mean, I look around and see these people. We have really responsible people, hardworking people. You really work hard and you're diligent and you're breadwinners and you're doing your part, taking care of your family, but we have to remember that it comes from the Lord. Proverbs 30, verse 8 and 9. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Why would he say that? Don't give me riches. Don't give me poverty. Feed me with food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. Just give me enough. Just give me enough. Don't give me too much because I'll, I'll think I, I got it myself. Give us this day our daily bread. Where does our provision comes from. It comes from the Lord. In verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Notice here that Lord's putting before us, there, there's a link between our being forgiven and our forgiving others. And he's saying if you've been forgiven much, you ought to be the one who forgives much. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us like we're forgiving others. And he comes back to this in verse 14 and, and 15. Forgive if you Give others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Now, now let me clear up some things here. This isn't like a works-based deal. Like, so you're saying that I, God's going to only forgive me if I forgive other people. Well, that would be a works-based deal. And if that was the case, we'd all be in trouble. Because we don't, we don't forgive like the Lord forgives us. But, but what he's saying, what's our motivation? We, we should be motivated to forgive because look at what the Lord's forgiven us for. Why do we forgive? Because we've been forgiven. It's kind of like love. Why do we love God? Because he first loved us. Yeah, that forgiveness goes the same way. We forgive because we have been forgiven. Well, I ask you, are you a forgiving person? How are you doing at that? How are we doing at that? What about your spouse? Are you, have you forgiven a, your spouse? What about a friend? Maybe a sibling? Because siblings, sometimes we, we, you know, we, we talk about a lot of things and, and, and our young people, we, we give them opportunities to serve and love, and we see, we're seeing them grow, and, and they're growing in their knowledge of God and their love for the Lord. But sometimes we, we talk about all these things, and for some reason, students, we feel like everything that we we're teaching you, siblings, it really doesn't apply. Yeah, I need to love so-and-so. I need to respect my parents, da, 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 da. but my siblings, nah, it don't really matter how I treat them. I can treat them like garbage. No. That's not biblical. Some of you have your attitude when it comes. You have really good attitudes towards everybody, but then your siblings come by and you look at them like. Yeah, we need to be forgiving, even your sibling. Yeah, how is that forgiveness going for you? Verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
many of us think we're not capable of the most heinous of sins? You know, people do terrible things, rebel against the Lord, sin against other people, and you think, man, how in the world could they ever do that? I think the same thing. I think we all do that. But you know, apart from God's grace, that'd be us. Sometimes we think, man, I'd never do that. I'd never, and man, I'd never do that. I'd never talk to people that way. I'd never treat my spouse that way. I'd never do that. I'd never lie. I'd never cheat like that. I'd never steal like that. I'd never, I'd never. We know from our own experience, don't we, us older folks, we're prone to wonder, aren't we? Wonder. We need help to keep us from blowing it. I pray that about every day. Lord, don't let me blow it. Like folks that I love that have blown it. Don't let me lose my testimony. I'm a pastor. I know it just takes one stupid, selfish, evil act. And my job, my ministry, my testimony would be garbage. We're not above infidelity. We're not above deceit. We're not above fraud. We're not above those things. We need God's grace every day. Lead us not into temptation, Lord, but deliver us from evil. Because evil is right there knocking on our door every day. David and Abraham and Moses and Peter. We think about these great godly men. Men after your own heart. The great patriarch, the father of the Israelites. Peter. One of Jesus' favorite people in all the world. What do they do? They blew it. You have more faith in Abraham than Moses, than Peter. In the garden, you remember Jesus was, he took his three best friends, best disciples, closest followers, Peter, James, and John, he went to the garden. And he goes off to pray and he comes back. And what's he tell them? Do you remember what he tells them watch and pray watch and pray that you fall not into temptation Jude 24 incredible wonderful verse now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy who keeps us from falling and failing and blowing it it's the Lord father lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil that should be our attitude that should be our attitude Lord help me Help me. Help me. I'm a moment in the flesh away from just blowing it all. Help me, Lord. And it's funny, these, these three petitions, they're all connected by and. Give us our daily bread and forgive us our deaths and lead us not into temptation. These are constant needs of God's people. Provision for our daily needs, forgiveness of sins, deliverance from evil. We really are products. We're, not, we're products of mercy and grace, aren't we? He provides for us. He forgives us. He delivers us from temptation and the enemy. He provides for us. We are dependent on him. By way of application as we close. Firstly, I think we should pray with the right motives. So do we pray frequently... Or do we pray more frequently when we are alone with God than we were when we are in, in public? 
maybe that kind of let us know where our motives are. And are you a spectator of your own performance in regard to prayer? Are you worried more about bringing our prayers to men or to God? We need to check our motives at the door in regard to prayer. And what's our prayer life like? Is it just constantly going to the Lord, help me, help me, help me? Or are they these petitions for God to help us coupled with praise and a submissive heart, submissive attitude, a yielded spirit to obey the Lord? And lastly, how dependent are we on the Lord? We're so blessed, sometimes we, we can get really apathetic and thinking we're okay and we don't need a lot of help. We met with a, a young lady last night. She's going to, she's going overseas in Asia to work. And so she wanted to just kind of hear about our experience, get some resources and whatnot. And so we spent time with her and just kind of sharing some of our experience and something about culture, um, some just resources, you know, dealing with language and, and visas and those kind of things. But as we were talking, I, Jenny and I both shared something. Um, you know, when you're overseas, it's, it's, it's so hard, it's so much harder being there that what it does, it makes you depend on the Lord every day, all day long for every little thing. Think, man, how much better is that life? What happens when I come back here? It's like you, you get in autopilot mode where some things are easier. You don't have to worry about, you know, somebody getting sick or somebody, that, you know, whatever, not getting to go to the doctor. or just so many things you don't have to worry about. You just kind of get in cruise control. How much better is it when you're all day long, day in and day out, depending, having to depend on the Lord for any and everything. But that's the way the Lord wants us. He wants us coming before Him, giving Him praise, honoring Him, hallowing His name. But He wants us dependent on Him. How's your prayer life? Let's pray this week. We're going to spend some time Wednesday night. We're going to do our chronological Bible study. Those are, working, are coming to, to be with the adults. But we're going to have some time just to pray. We need to be praying people. I'm going to encourage you in your just daily time, just getting up, spending time with the Lord, going to the Lord in prayer, being yielded in your heart to the Lord, humbling yourself before Him, going to Him with your needs, depending on Him, realizing we're, we're dependent on the Lord for everything good. Let's pray and we'll dismiss. Father, we do acknowledge your goodness. What a blessing just to have your word and this pattern of prayer set before us, given to us by Christ. Father, we, we are prideful people. Lord, even those of us who've been redeemed, we're prideful people. And Lord, we real quickly forget that everything good we have comes from you. We forget that we are prone to, to leave you Father, may we spend time in prayer this week, day in and day out, praying with right attitude. Giving you glory by the way we pray. And Father, if there's some here, maybe believers who just kind of gotten out of the habit, maybe their schedule changed, 
maybe just some things happen in life where they're they don't have the time or their um, the time that they usually spend in prayer is is now filled with something else. I just pray that you'd help us this week to get back in the habit routine of just spending time with you, of drawing near to you. Lord, may we. May we live our lives like you are what life's all about. Father, may you help us to prioritize intimate, intimate times with you. And Father, and help us with our motives because we are a prideful people and we love, we love accolades and we love people to give us out of boys. Father, help us to check our motives. Help us to draw near to you so you can be glorified. Help us be dependent on you for everything. Lord, for our provision, for our forgiveness, and for, for our deliverance from, from sin. Help us, Father, as a church to be a praying people. May we do that this week for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for tuning in today. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast if this message has been helpful to you. Again, if you have any questions, go to our website for our contact information, and we'll see you next time.